Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. This is the free episode, and we do two episodes a week. The Monday episode is available only on Patreon. So for this week's patron episode, I sat down with Greg Gonzalez, an epidemiologist and longtime HIV-AIDS activist, to talk about monkeypox, stigma, and the need to organize around COVID and the lessons for our current moment that can be learned from an honest reckoning with the successes and failures of the HIV-AIDS movement and the legacy of ACT UP. It's a great interview, and you can listen to that by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today we are joined by returning audience favorite, friend of the panel and longtime death panel epidemiology correspondent, Abby Cardis. Abby is a perinatal epidemiologist and a postdoctoral research associate at Brown University School of Public Health, working with the People, Place and Health Collective. Abby, welcome back to the show. It's been a little while, so I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to have you on. I mean, time works funny in the pandemic. I realized the other day when I was looking through my notes uh, for when we first covered the Great Barrington Declaration, and I was like, wow, it's cool that basically two years to the day from when we first had Abby on the show is when our book comes out, because we had you on October 19th, 2020, and our book comes out October 18th. But um, it's kind of wild to think it's been two years since we first made fun of COVID minimizers together. There have been times when it feels like it's been 12 years and times when it feels like it's been six months and sometimes on the same day. But anyways, I'm so glad <laughs> to have you back. You've always been the caretaker here. Yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to have you back on the show, as always, Abby, and especially today. Today, we're going to talk about a recent piece from the New York Times' own David Leonhardt called COVID and Race which suggested that the ongoing disproportionate burden of COVID deaths in the United States on people of color has miraculously been reversed. And while this might nicely back up the Biden administration's claim that it has successfully centered equity in its COVID response, this is not, in fact, true. At best, David Leonhardt has misread data to dramatically misrepresent the situation. But first, before we get into that, So last week in Politico, it was reported that the Biden administration has been talking amongst themselves to try and sort out what an acceptable threshold of deaths might be. This reporting got around and some people were quite shocked, but this is something that we've actually all covered for a long time. And as we thought, these conversations about seeking that kind of tolerable level of death, like the idea of getting down to 200 deaths a day, so it's just like a bad flu season, I'm sure that's a line that, you know, if you're listening to this, you might have heard somewhere at least maybe a dozen times at this point. Well, that originates as sort of part of this debate within the United States about what an acceptable level of death might be. And what this reporting basically confirmed was that, yes, these conversations happening publicly in sort of op-ed pages were also happening behind closed doors in the White House. Yeah. And it seems like this falls into the category of things that we had very good reason to believe uh, while no special knowledge of like had to be going on. Right. right. It's, it's it's obvious that if you're adopting this strategy or as Biden calls it, my approach, um, <laughs> you know, the uh, you know, that you have to have something like this in mind. But it's also something that if you have it, you know, 
you are never going to make it explicit or public because that right. is a politically intolerable thing to do. Once the words come out of your mouth, it makes no sense. But it does seem to be the case that they had this sense that, well, it, it can't be like a 9-11 every day. That's what like that. It seemed to be like the sort of the I, I don't know, rule of thumb they were going for, like the conventional, like the sort of numerical convention. It can't be like that high. It has to be, you know, the acceptable number has to be something a little bit lower than that. Uh, but otherwise, it's really just I mean, it, it's, it's not necessarily surprising. And it does sort of go to this point. I read this like uh, really terrible uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal uh, piece like opinion piece in Kaiser Health News this morning that was just like oh god you know the problem like why <laughs> we don't why we have like an anemic uh pandemic response now is like public health isn't sexy what you need, like a sexy <gasps> yeah, oh, well, yeah speak it to yourself like I just, also like, read this but, just before we recorded but, and I, my also, jaw hit the floor at that part yeah yes. it's just like, oh it's just like oh public health isn't sexy we need like a sexy narrative it's like no, that's not the reason why our like pandemic response is so anemic. It's because the strategy from the beginning was to, you know, push for the idea that really extreme measures or, or even sort of, you know, extending the emergency relief measures that we had passed was no longer necessary and that we could go back to doing normal politics again. And that was a choice. And this reveals the, you know, essentially like conventional Ill, you know, illogical or symbolic undercarriage to that choice. I'm sorry. I just have to take a second to dunk on that thing that that piece that you're oh, uh, talking so about specifically bad. because oh. I know that this is far this from the like purview. The of we, we didn't usually we plan what we're going to talk about and what we're going to dunk on. This this is just like a, a nice I think happenstance basically here that we both read this just before. But his it, It's actually it's even worse than kind of what you described because it's like yes, she's saying. Public health needs and doesn't have a sexy narrative. Um, and then she says, quote, that's because if public health officials are respected, well-funded and allowed to do their jobs, here's the result. Nothing happens. Outbreaks don't lead to pandemics. <laughs> Patients stop smoking, eat healthier and lose weight. So it's just automatically oh, this. OK, great. Please. So your idea of, a, of um, a strong public health regime in the United States is basically like, what if Michael Bloomberg was allowed to personally fund every right. single public health <laughs> exactly, right? And also like that the problem with public health is that inherently when it's working well, it will never be sexy. So it's always fated to be unsexy and unfunded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's unsexy because it's about piss and shit and like lesions. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like totally there's. You can do like the Pete Buttigieg thing, you know, like a wonk with sex appeal. But that doesn't I feel like that doesn't go as far in public health because it's, like the, the poop and pee is never far, yes. never far away. I think um, yeah. I want to make sure that we don't let this uh, acceptable level of death thing go, though. So just to play, um, you know, exposition a little bit here. So the specifics of this report, which, again, I think this got around a lot last week, this political report about the Biden administration having internal discussions about what an acceptable or like, but literally they say like kind of, kind of what level of death would be tolerable in the U S. Um, so they say in this report, quote, Biden officials in recent months privately discussed how many daily COVID-19 deaths it would take to declare the virus tamed. The discussions involved a scenario in which 200 or fewer Americans die per day, a target kicked around before officials ultimately decided not to incorporate it into pandemic planning According to the people, uh, 
One of the three people involved in the conversations last year said it was an effort to gauge what the American people would quote unquote tolerate, saying, quote, 500 a day is a lot. You still have 9-11 numbers in a week. People generally felt like 100 a day or less, maybe 200 would be okay. Uh, because, quote, when you spread 100 to 200 deaths around the country, then it's minimal around your geographic area, the person said. And then, it, mm-hmm. you know, of course, make sure to say, but the idea never became official. And so, yeah, again, I guess I would like echo kind of what B said, which is yeah. to say that, yes, of course, it seems that clearly the, the like the, this conversation sort of has a long history, which is saying like, oh, what if we just got it down to, quote unquote, like the level of flu deaths in a given, you know, bad flu season or something, which is still a horrible number, which is still, you know, again, 200 people dying a day, which is, again, intolerable. And something we, if this is a level we only hit once, which was, you know, back in early summer of 2021, right before Biden, Biden declared victory over the virus and uh, masks came off and cases exploded. I'm wondering if you all remember, as you say, Artie, this is kind of a conversation with a long history. And I remember back when like endemicity started becoming a buzzword and people were really talking about like what, you know, the transition to endemic COVID is going to live with. And I distinctly remember when endemicity, that conversation was kind of taking off, a lot of people were kind of saying like, okay, well, you know, when we're talking about endemicity, what we're really talking about is how much like, you know, sickness and death are we willing to accept from COVID. And I remember a lot of pundits, you know, and very serious people being extremely offended by the mere fact of like posing the question that way. You know what I mean? Like, well, how dare you? Like, how dare you ask us? Like, of course, you know, no deaths are tolerable pregnant pause, (laughs) you know, but except. (laughs) Yeah. So I I distinctly remember that happening. And it's interesting that it's resurfacing now. And I think it's also interesting that um, the the metric here is it seems like backwards. It seems like if we are wanting to move, you know, towards this space of, you know, living, living in the midst of COVID, you know, like trying to trying to live and, and function while COVID is still, you know, very much a part of our lives, it seems like the appropriate target would be a transmission target. Like to base just the whole idea of acceptable deaths is such a weird way to frame this, because if you framed it around, you know, an acceptable level of transmission, that would imply very clear steps as to, you know, minimizing transmission, preventing Mm -hmm. transmission from occurring. But Using, you know, acceptable deaths as the metric, it's basically, I mean, all of epidemiology is basically alchemy, you know what I mean? But it's basically (laughs) like pre-scientific intuition, like, yeah, because we don't know, you know, we don't have a good sense of, you know, which specific infections are going to result in deaths or, you know, we do, but it's, it's just, it seems weird to me that they are kind of Mm -hmm. triangulating it this way. Like we're going to set a level of 200 deaths a day do nothing and like hope that we hit it. And it's like, well, why would you do it that way? Well, and it's also like seemingly, I mean, you could talk about it at this sort of the aggregate level, like what is acceptable, which is, which is again, it's pointless. It's pointless to have that discussion because that's never going to be articulated as like, this is acceptable. That's only going to like live, you know, it's only going to sort of haunt the debate um, at the edges because no politician actually wants to take that position. So you'll get pundits talking about that. Uh, But what it is, I think more, I think more clearly in the way that people might experience it is like it is a policy choice for more of a Russian roulette, right? Like it's, it's a Mm -hmm. policy choice to make it 
essentially more uncertain and, and difficult to manage in situations where you might not know what sort of precautions you should take. So like that's that's the thing that I think is you know, sort of missed when it's just referred to as like, well, they they had this sort of idea of, uh, you know, acceptable deaths. That was only like necessary for them to like get over the internal logical hump of what they were doing behind closed doors. It doesn't actually describe what that means for the way that like an epidemiological like strategy is going to work in real time at, at the level of uh, people actually getting infected or not getting infected. Yeah. Yeah, I think also it's really important just to to note and be a, really upfront about. I think we mentioned this um, a little bit before, but just how this even this number, like this uh, this idea, even that got like reported around the idea that they were talking about this sort of like what would be an acceptable level of deaths. Even I think a lot of the people who kind of got you know um, cor- like correctly got sort of like up in a righteous up outrage at least for like a moment about this. Um, even some mm-hmm. of those people I think are. One or some of those actually that I saw were even people who like have said the like, oh, we just need to get it down to flu levels line in the past, which again is like basically exactly what they were saying. Um, and two, I think that, you know, there's what one really important piece of context for this is just, again, that fact that like even the idea of keeping COVID deaths to around 200 a day while, you know, keeping the game plan as such like the game plan as it is now and not really substantially changing anything like even that goal is like tragically would be tragically aspirational right it's like we we can't even i think hope to get uh to that without dramatically changing something um we're over you know as b mentioned we've only kind of like hit that once we're above that now um we only hit it for a very brief time I mean, I think we technically also hit it in the first two weeks of the pandemic, but I would argue that 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 does not count. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think just the other thing, kind of maybe my last point about this is also that I think this does kind of say a lot about the attitude and the discussion inside the administration, Um, because you could read this and say like, okay, yeah, that's pretty crass. Like they're talking about assuming people will just accept at least like 70 to 80,000 deaths a year from COVID. Uh, in perpetuity, obviously, that's been like the, the case already even more. So obviously, it's been worse than that un- until now. But like, actually, it actually says something a little bit worse than, oh, just the conversation that they had is a little crass, because I said, I think what it says to me is it confirms sort of what we were talking about in the winter, which is that the Biden administration talking about what level of death people will tolerate their objective or not even their objective, their sort of rubric for are we doing OK or not in our pandemic response is more or less like, well, people aren't rioting in the street, are they? Right. Because right? when you're talking about like, oh, what level of death will people tolerate from this? I feel like that's the kind of the only thing. Obviously, there's there's kind of like the the main thing is like, okay, what level of death will people tolerate if we can get that down to that level where we can say, okay, problem is solved, like, you know, foe vanquished or whatever, uh, moving on <laughs> pandemic over. Like, obviously, there's there's sort of like uh, one level to that, but sort of the inverse of that is like, OK, so you have to imagine if they're talking about like tolerability, then like the real goal, I think, is to just basically keep things where they are, which is like, you know, keep people people from like running them out of town on a rail. Right. <laughs> right. No. And, and I think this is why I, I really appreciated the point that you made, Abby, about the real metric that they should be striving towards being this acceptable level of infections or transmission rather, because, you know, we know what causes infections and how to stop them. And it makes sense to me that the same administration who's really pivoting away from infections, right, who's really focused on 
and heavily relying on this framework that blames the pandemic on some kind of like electoral tribalism, you know, best exemplified in the pandemic of the unvaccinated line. Like we know this is sort of how they're thinking through at least their messaging on COVID, but it's also clear that this is the mindset that's going into COVID planning across the board. And this actually reminds me of a conversation that we had with Nathan Tankus in December of 2020, where Nathan said something along the lines of like, the way we should be talking about COVID spending is not about how big the overall number it is. It should be like, what is it going to cost to be able to bring deaths down or infections down? And this is a kind of like classic example that we're seeing from the Biden administration of having a number in mind ahead of time that sounds good and sort of floating that balloon first before, you know, asking if that number is actually a number that's going to be able to like make a meaningful intervention, right? Like it's not like is 200 deaths a day okay? They're saying like, Will 200 deaths a day cause outrage or not? Right. What is the well, level yeah, that causes exactly. outrage? And I think that there is a real kind of intentionality behind the rhetoric of even framing this conversation in terms of tolerability or like yeah. what the public yeah. will tolerate. I'm not even sure what that actually means because the reality is that whether you know whether or not i am tolerating like the <laughs> pandemic is completely immaterial to how the pandemic response is going the fact is that people are being forced into situations of you know exposure to covid and some of those people are going to die because they're they're being forced into those into those situations you know through I think oftentimes through work, you know, various, <laughs> various types. But, you know, what's happening is that bad policy is killing a lot of people. But the Biden administration wants to frame this in terms of tolerability, acceptability. And I think that's very in keeping with their general strategy of devolving responsibility to individual people. It's also I, I mean, I, it, it does reflect a very let's just say the, the polite word would be interesting move <laughs> in a democratic country where, you know, in, in democratic theory, you would typically think about things being oriented towards preferences. What would people prefer orienting it towards what they will tolerate <laughs> as a political theory is let's just say a very interesting uh, decision that not necessarily a, a decision that's sort of like surprising, but it does sort of reflect this idea that like the goal is to just figure out what people's like scope of tolerance for suffering is. There's a sort of parameter around the idea that people won't be rebelling for very, you know, for most of these things in any meaningful way. And so why bother? Right. Absolutely. And I think the bottom line too, is that the priority, right, is obviously I think how low do deaths have to be, for it not to be a problem. And that's sort of, it's more so than any single personality involved in the Biden pandemic response. It's that attitude that is driving the failures of their response, ultimately, because as we know, and, and, and maybe this is a good way to move on to David Leonhardt, actually, you know, the obvious point is that like, it's still too much illness, it's still too much death. And like that illness and death is still disproportionately distributed among people of color and among low income people. So one of the things that we've been talking about with David Leonhardt, right, because one of the one of the problems of the pandemic is not the individual personalities, but the sort of systems and institutions and messages that become dominant ideas through things like the morning newsletter 
is that in his recent work, right, he has been downplaying COVID and saying that COVID really doesn't matter anymore and that infections don't matter. And his latest newsletter, um, COVID and Race, got into this assertion that he's making, basically this claim, that contrary to the beginning of the pandemic, we've now seen a shift in the demographics of who is dying from COVID. And that while early on there was a disproportionate burden of COVID deaths in people of color, that that has miraculously flipped. And now the burden is in white people. And this is a pretty bold claim to make. And it's not true. And a lot of people have called him out for it. But I think what's what's important here is not just necessarily why that's untrue. And we're going to get into that first. But also, what is the context of this broader claim? Because as we've talked about, David Leonhardt's pieces, while they may not be necessarily like in and of themselves shaping pandemic policy, David Leonhardt is, after all, the kind of norm enforcer in chief, as we joked in our recent patron episode, that part of what the function of the morning newsletter is, is a kind of assertion about the way the pandemic should be and the way the response should be. And it, it, it is obviously reflecting and boosting the Biden administration's pandemic policies, but it also reflects and boosts a kind of idea about who the pandemic affects and who matters in the context of COVID that is actually not very tethered to reality. And that's one of the things that I think makes it important to talk about because it's so much bigger than just, you know, what did David Leonhardt write this week? It's part of a bigger picture. I think the other important thing to just uh, from the top mention about this is this. It's interesting because we've been calling out David Leonhardt for a very long time. We've been calling out a lot of the messaging that comes from the morning newsletter, a lot of the sort of minimizing that he does and the sort of repetitious everything from, you know, basically straightforwardly reprinting Emily Oster's claims about COVID and children being no big deal to, you know, you, you name it to basically now being to the to the point where he's like propagandized the idea that masks don't really work or that mandate mask mandates didn't do anything that COVID protections didn't achieve anything really. And, you know, while, while we've been trying to highlight this really frequently, especially because it, it has this like newsletter has such a huge following. This is interestingly, I think the first time where he's sort of published one and we've seen a tremendous amount of pushback from normies, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even see people like um, Caitlin Jettelina or whatever wrote this like huge post about how Leonhardt's claim here was you know, COVID misinformation. And this is kind of the tack that a lot of these people take against it. They're, they're sort of like, okay, well, you know, you're doing like, uh, you know, you can imagine like pushing the glasses bridge up on your nose or whatever. You did science wrong. You're doing social science wrong. You're, you like misread statistics. Uh, and it's actually like, you should, you should print a correction. You should print some sort of, uh, or you should like retract it or something. And I think, I think when we get into it and kind of explain like what the problems are with his claims and go, I think a little bit beyond what some of these people are talking about when they say like, oh, this is simply misinformation. I think it will be clear that like the problem is a lot bigger than that. And maybe it'll make sense why the Times hasn't retracted it Mm -hmm. and won't Mm -hmm. and won't. And And I think I think I'm fairly confident in predicting that they won't. Absolutely. Oh, they definitely won't. Don't expect them to do that. Yeah, they definitely. I have no expectation that they're going to retract it either, even though. Like if I had made an error like that in like some of my published work, it would not pass pure. You know what I mean? Like the error is so elementary that like I would not and, be able to get away with but it. Also, but also, <laughs> but also like if it were being, I mean, look, it's if thinking about the normal sort of editorial process, the times where you do see a lot of scrutiny of like pretty basic 
claims, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wouldn't pass. Much. I mean, like, frankly, like fan based baseball reporting is more a better fact checked than this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just like but I mean, I, I do think at bottom before we get it like. So, again, if, if you're coming at this thinking like all the only problem is uh, Leonhardt doing like bad social science, like. Come on into the David Leonhart corral uh, and you, you're going to find a lot of like a huge horror show. But at the bottom, like, I think the reason that this did attract a lot of you know criticism from quarters that don't usually go out of their way to criticize David Leonhart is the fact that this is such a just baldly fallacious claim. So, like, Abby, can we like get into that, at least that piece of it? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think you're exactly right about this, Phil. <laughs> I think the reason so many normies I guess push back on this is yeah like the it's it's just a a very glaring obvious um mistake and I want people to kind of understand like I feel like it's been established now like oh like experts say David Leonhardt is wrong but I want people to (laughs) um I want people to have you know some some intuition for for why that is rather than just you know referring to like experts so I'm hoping that um, everyone can kind of bear with me a little bit as I talk through maybe some technical stuff. It'll be brief and I'll try to make it fun. Um, But I'm doing this because I want, (laughs) you know, I want I want your listeners um, to basically be able to cyber bully David Lee to the core. Um, So uh, just bear with me. So to to start kind of like developing this intuition as to why this this newsletter was so misleading. Um, I think it's helpful to start talking about just a couple different ways of counting, which is like the basic unit of activity in epidemiology and probably most social sciences. So how you count numbers and how you present numbers really depends on what you are trying to do with those numbers, what question you're trying to answer. So if I'm trying to answer, you know, how many COVID deaths have there been in the United States, I could simply count up, you know, the the number of death certificates that record COVID as a cause of death. Now, you know, there are maybe some issues with measurement, but basically, you know, a simple a simple counting would suffice for that question. But what if, you know, instead I wanted to compare, you know, perhaps the intensity of the pandemic in terms of mortality in different parts of the country, like, you know, say like New York City and North or South Dakota, a simple count in this case would be very misleading because New York City is obviously very populous. It just has mm-hmm. a lot of people and they would probably have a much higher number of cases and deaths at any given time. So the appropriate thing to do here is to calculate what's called a rate and I mean, you you use rates in your life all the time. You know, miles per hour <laughs> is a rate. Um, in this case, you could calculate the mortality rate in both New York and North Dakota by taking, you know, the total number of, of COVID deaths in each place over the total population of each place and then multiplying it by some constant. So if you want to get a rate per thousand people, you could multiply by a thousand. And that allows you to compare the mortality between those two places directly. So it sort of adjusts away the differences in population between those two places. Now, there might be like additional, you know, further adjustments that need to be made in order to make a direct comparison between two places. Now, again, like this is a very common practice in epidemiology because, 
you know, to, much to Vinay Prasad's chagrin, like we are very infrequently able to do the types of randomized control trials that allow right, you to right. assign exposures. You know, it's not ethical to randomize someone to be exposed to lead, for example. So we're in a world of kind of observational data, making comparisons among groups that are really different. And what we typically have to do is use these kinds of statistical adjustments in order to make these different groups like truly comparable. So a great example of this type of adjustment is like, okay, so, you know, we, we've, we've talked about rates, but let's say we want to compare COVID mortality rates between maybe uh, like a college setting and a nursing home setting mm -hmm. in the same city. You know, we could calculate rates using the population of each place, but those groups still wouldn't be very comparable. And the reason is because, as we say, um, these two groups have different quote unquote, age structures. So we would imagine that the nursing home residents are a lot older than, you know, the, the college staff and students. And age is, as David Leonhardt never tires of reminding us, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, probably the biggest uh, risk factor for COVID mortality. So unless we adjust for the fact that these two groups have very different age structures, that the nursing home residents are much older you know, we won't be able to make a direct comparison between those places that's very informative. And that's where this technique of age adjustment comes in. So in addition to sort of adjusting away the effects of different populations between two places, you can also adjust away the differences in age between two places. And so, you know, calculating these rates that are so-called age adjusted, this again, allows you to just compare these two groups um, with different age structures really directly. What it allows you to do is say, you know, like, here's what, you know, the COVID mortality rates would be if both groups had kind of the same age structures. Right. And I think that's also like, I appreciate you and you like preferencing this as like, here are just different standard ways of counting and sort of how each has shortcomings too, because this is not like some, uh, I think, really difficult to understand error. And a lot of people like tend to throw out like, this is like this sort of technical term and like that's why it's wrong and no one ever takes right. the time to sit down and be like here's what happens when you don't adjust for age Which, this is like right. why counting matters and influences like the way you count influences the kind of comparison you can make which has led to a lot of like the principal defense of this Leonhardt post in particular actually has been like, OK, so the nerds say like you have to count this other different way. But like he's looking at the raw raw numbers and raw number bigger. Right. So right. like raw number bigger. Isn't he still correct? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, he's not correct. And <laughs> in fact, he has fallen into a trap that a lot of uh, epidemiologists, I mean, a classic data trap that a lot of epidemiologists were very happy to point out to him, right, that he had been misled by this feature of, of, of data, honestly, um, data with a causal structure. It's called, um, it's called Simpson's paradox. And this is kind of, it's called a paradox because basically what it means is when you aggregate and disaggregate data, you can sometimes end up with effect measures or, you know, the data can tell you completely opposite things depending on whether it's sort of aggregated or disaggregated. Um, and I'll, I'll, I can tell you what this means. Like the most famous example of this is it has to do with like UC admissions to UC Berkeley in the <laughs> 1970s. I guess they commissioned like some uh, statistician to like review this because they were concerned that there was like gender bias in applications to UC Berkeley. So they noticed that 
you know, for the the school overall, I guess they were admitting like 45 percent of of male applicants, but only like 35 percent of female applicants. And they were like, oh, God, (laughs) you know, are we doing a sexism in our admissions here? (laughs) They hired the statistician to look. But then looking by each department at UC Berkeley, this person found that, you know, most of the departments actually admitted a higher proportion of, of women applicants um, than than male applicants or that there was, you know, like really no difference. So, you know, this is what's happening when you look at the data altogether across the whole school. It seems that admissions are kind of biased in favor of men. But then when you look by department, it kind of tells the opposite story. So this is like the apparent paradox here. And to talk about what's happening, you know, you can appeal to kind of like the underlying like causal structure of what you're investigating. So what was happening in this case is that women were more likely to apply to more selective departments overall. So they were more likely to apply to departments that just admit a smaller percentage of applicants. And men, I think, were more likely to apply to less selective departments. So this is kind of like the essence of Simpson's paradox. There are other, um, you know, there are other examples of this that you can have a great time looking up, you know, medium posts by data scientists, like explaining (laughs) Simpson's paradox in a variety of situations. Um, but in the in the newsletter, so, you know, I wake up pretty early every day, like I have this whole ritual, <laughs> I like do yoga, you know, drink coffee, everything. But this means that I'm usually reading the morning <laughs> by like 730 a.m. Eastern. You know what I mean? Like I am on top of it. Oh, so it's a self-abuse self-harm. ritual. I see. Oh, okay. totally. Uh, now it's, I'm getting it. Yes, I'm getting it now. Yeah, it's self-care and self-harm, like all kind of together is my morning ritual. Um, <laughs> prepare so, the body, destroy the mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was reading this newsletter, you know, early, early, early in the day when it came out and in the newsletter, David Leonhardt, he presents, I mean, he just fucked himself by doing this. (laughs) He didn't even know that every epidemiologist in the world, you know, was going to have a light bulb go off. He presented one set of figures, uh, or one figure that was, he was like, oh, this is showing the narrowing racial gaps. So this was showing, you know, rates that were, rates like by uh, racial and ethnic group, not adjusted for age, just for, you know, the the whole population overall, each line represented COVID deaths in each like racial and ethnic group, but no adjustment for any other factors. And in this one, you know, the, the line for COVID mortality among white people is sometimes higher than the lines for COVID mortality among people in other groups. Okay, so that was figure one. But then the other figure he showed in the newsletter is the same data over the same time period. But this time he broke it out by two age groups, which is essentially the same thing as adjusting uh, for age, as we just talked about. And doing this, breaking out these these rates by age group showed basically the opposite thing. It showed that through every wave of the pandemic, black and Hispanic people have had much higher covid mortality rates than white people within kind of each age group. So, you know, he just like he he walked right into like a, a booby trap of Simpson's paradox. And I think every person <laughs> like every epidemiologist woke up that morning and was like, oh, my God, no, no, no like you can't do this. Um, so in the in the figures that are broken out by age, there's no evidence of these, quote unquote, narrowing racial gaps that he's trying to talk about. And, you know, these findings look paradoxical. The unadjusted, the, the the rates that aren't age adjusted tell one story and the rates that are tell another story. And someone asked me on Twitter, OK, like, but which of these is true? Right. And it kind of depends. Like, neither of them are wrong numbers. 
Neither of them are incorrect data. But I would say that age adjusting the rates is the correct way of presenting the story because, again, age is so relevant for COVID mortality. And because the age structures of different racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. are very different. I was looking at like a Pew report that was saying, um, I think it was from, you know, pre-pandemic, like 2018. But the most common age among white people in the U.S. is 58 Among black people, the most common age is 27. And among Hispanic people, the most common age is 11. And so I wouldn't say that rates that are not age adjusted, you know, rates by race and ethnicity that are not age adjusted, I would not say that those unadjusted rates are accurate, right? I think that the appropriate thing to do is adjust them. But obviously, that's like not the work that is being done by this newsletter. The work that's being done by this newsletter is David Leonhardt is trying to make COVID into a death of despair. He's trying Mm -hmm. to argue that it's only the unvaccinated who are mostly Republicans and white people. And again, I mean, it's like this manufacture of of meaninglessness, really, that I think he he continues to be engaged in because it would have been very easy, you know, like he's making this whole argument about polarization and, oh, changing that, you know, narrowing racial disparities in vaccination rates and all this stuff. And it's like, well, you could answer this question directly, right? Like you could just calculate rates that are adjusted for both age and vaccination status. And that would <laughs> that yes. would actually answer the question that Leonhard is claiming that he's posing. But he didn't do that. And he didn't do that because... He wants to say that black and Hispanic people are no longer dying disproportionately, but they are right. Like he's just trying to render like the last thing that liberals felt like they had to care about was like, oh, yeah, COVID. Like, I don't give a shit, but does suck that it seems to be disproportionately harming racial and ethnic minority groups. I feel like he's he's trying to manufacture the meaninglessness and give, you know, his readers the permission to be like, oh, okay, well, that's not a problem anymore. So I have full license to stop caring. Right. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the pandemic response is no longer racist. Therefore, you like white liberal New York Times reader no longer have to really uh, care about it or really think that it's like, in fact, not only do you not have to really care about it as a symbol of like on ongoing like inequality or, or whatever, or uh, like systemic racism in America. But in fact, you can kind of feel glee at the idea that now if like more white people are dying, it's because of all of those like unvaxxed, you know, Republicans who that who you think are just like the scum of the earth or something like that. Yeah. And that if anyone like, you know, me or, you know, any <laughs> any of us is pointing out that this isn't the case. Something that I noticed was a lot of people, a lot of, you know, libs being like, well, well, you like, why do you love racism? Like, why are you so excited to say that like racism is still a problem? And it's like, it's because racism is still a problem. Like, I don't love this. Are you crazy? Like, (laughs) well, that reminds me of the responses that we get when we talk about not, not, not very often, actually, now uh, we don't get these responses that much anymore. But when we first started talking about being some of the first people to like point to this data about breakthrough deaths, we got all mm-hmm. these people being like, oh, you're aren't you just so happy that the vaccine isn't like working? I'm like, no, I first of all, I didn't say the vaccine isn't working. You just said that. Second, <laughs> it was like, no, that's not the point. Like, no one is happy about this. The point is that we have to do something about this and saying something like it's OK. Like the here's the real tell. And I think this kind of gets us now maybe to like the part where we can kind of start building on these things that don't get talked about when mm-hmm. a bunch of these libs, you know, uh, try to do this, you know, 
these these kind of like toothless takedowns of David Leonhart, um, they're toothless largely because they don't incorporate the sort of political picture into mm-hmm. this. Um, a, a, there's a couple of th- aspects to this. One is that this is trying to assert that essentially that the steps of the Biden administration have taken the the um, adjustments to the vaccine rollout and everything to try and narrow the race gap basically in vaccination have been so successful that suddenly it's you know it, it's created this flip which again mm-hmm. is a flip what that you can only planet? view by skewing the statistics um in a way that's like not sound to any way that like anyone would actually look at these then further uh leonhart tries this rhetorical uh take out which is um quote Why haven't you heard more about the narrowing of COVID's racial gaps? I think part of the reason is that many experts and journalists feel uncomfortable highlighting shrinking racial gaps in almost any area. They worry that doing so will somehow minimize the problem of racism and the country's enduring (laughs) inequities, which I think is the textbook definition of irony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shut up, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It's I mean, okay. here's the thing, right? Like. This is the kind of framework, right? This is the kind of like baby shit that is pulled out, right? Like every time that you try and make uh, any sort of like claim of like, oh, well, maybe this is part of a broad pattern of people like David Leonhardt downplaying the role of systemic racism in the pandemic and then conveniently within the own piece writing in a kind of uh, mea culpa, like this might seem paradoxical, but it's true, which is the exact same rhetorical, rhetorical technique that he's taken to de- discredit non-pharmaceutical interventions, saying he's used this to say that, well, immunocompromised people are not actually that vulnerable to COVID. He's used this to say that, uh, yeah, your your unvaccinated child is like your vaccinated grandma. He's used this to say that masks work but mandates don't right this is um this is again a sort of repetition of that same logic which over and over what this actually what this body of work actually constitutes right is a ongoing project to undermine critiques of of covid as existing within the context of racial capitalism well i mean i think there's even i, I do think that this is illustrative of of why somebody like Elizabeth Rosenthal is wrong when she says like the problem of why we we don't have a more aggressive COVID response Mm -hmm. is that we don't have a sexy narrative of public health, which is sort of the old line that like, oh, people don't pay attention to this. There's not enough attention to this problem. That's really Mm. why. And to me, awareness kind of the reverse. There's plenty of attention. There's plenty of ink spilled, you know, like, you go back through the archives of the morning and I'm sure you get at least at the very least you get one COVID newsletter per week from, from, from David Leonhardt. The issue is not the absence of attention. It's attention and the sort of distortion of reality. And the point is, ne- you know, this isn't. And and I, I think it's I, I don't even know what the times like claims this, you know, to be beyond the front page of you know, one of the front pages of their their site or the front doors of their site. But like it is just and nothing more than a vibes, you know, vibes. community. It's, it's like if you were feeling that everything is getting better and that like not very much is like affecting you beyond a kind of sentimental uh, kind of attachment to reality, then this is really it's just going to nicely sort of reinforce. And, 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 you know, if you happen to have any sort of governing authority, it's going to like reinforce your, you know, view that there's really not much that you can or should do lest you put yourself at political peril. 
Well, I think to your point, Phil, something that I have really started to notice about the newsletter, it's not that things are getting better. It's that I feel like the newsletter and Leonhardt stress the kind of stable equilibrium state <laughs> of our society. And they do this, I mean, with everything, not just COVID. It's like, oh, well, you know, some people, you might be at, some people mm-hmm. might be at risk. You know, masks might work in some instances, but overall yeah. they do nothing. Will, you know, like will getting rid of Roe v. Wade really be yeah, that bad? Exactly. Is the other one that I was thinking. The gun deaths Mild one. abortion bans. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, <laughs> those were all the examples that I was going to say. And um, I've been reading this book uh, called The Dialectical Biologist. I think it's from the 70s. But I'm reading this book talking about how, oh, you know, like in in feudal times, social hierarchies were kind of fixed and hereditary. Uh, The theory of Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, that takes kind of change as a constant was really something that made sense in the context of like the bourgeois revolutions in Europe. But like the 20th century idea, the big 20th century idea in evolutionary theory is kind of dynamic, like change leads to stable equilibrium. And this corresponds to like a period of capitalism being, you know, well established, but kind of embattled. And I feel like Leonhardt is like, he's the dynamic equilibrium guy for like embattled COVID capitalism, you know, like making abortion illegal is just going to distribute these patients differently around the country. But like, don't, don't never fear, you know, the system is, is stable and, the, the abortion rate is not going to change that much. So I don't know. I see the I see the newsletter very much in that kind of vein of just, you know, repeating like soothing sounds about how the system is kind of self-correcting and like everything is going to be OK. But it's interesting. I want to um, I want to highlight this just because I think it's funny and it makes David Leonhard look like a clown. He did a thread kind of responding <laughs> to some of the critiques of his work and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, this this epidemiologist lady says that I need to uh, age adjust my rates. And he was like, and I kind of see what she's saying, but I just don't think age is that important. <laughs> I was like, OK, yeah, <laughs> well, whatever. My not, yes. And then he's saying, oh, but, you know, I, I've told you this whole story. But, at, you know, as a good journalist, here are some caveats. And he says as one of his caveats, he's like, well, um, you know, it is still true that, you know, a black person in the U.S. has a higher risk of dying uh, of COVID than a white person of the same vac status, age, <laughs> you know, like right. educational attainment, whatever. And it's like, oh, OK, so you're saying that when you age adjust your fucking rates, <laughs> like your whole your whole story no longer holds. But then he reverts back and is like, oh, but the fact remains that a larger percentage of white people have died of COVID than, you know, than the percentage of black people. And it's like, okay, but a percentage is just an unadjusted rate, like per 100. So like he completely like ate his own tail. And it's just like, so it's so egregious from like a logical, like a, like a scientific, you know, a data driven standpoint or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's what people were really responding to, but it's even more egregious when, you kind of put it in the the political and rhetorical context of what he's trying to do and like why he is committing these errors. You know, like there's motivation behind these errors right. that he's committing. Right. I don't think that he's just making a mistake out of ignorance of, of course, you know, that's certainly a possibility. But, you know, he's bitching about how the, the left is uh, is calling, you know, COVID takes they don't like misinformation 
I don't know what else to call, you know, this this type of maneuver, you know, like representing Propaganda. data in a highly misleading way okay, yeah. in order to bolster a specific yeah. narrative. But to quote Justin, who I mean, unfortunately, a uh, friend of of the pod and I think of all of us, Justin Feldman uh, couldn't be Brent here today. Wall. But Shout out to as he said, like, OK, well, fine, I won't call it misinformation. I'll call it racism because yeah. that's right. What <laughs> No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, what, what, what do you want me to call it? What, what generous word do you want me to use? Shitty reporting? Like, you're not good at your job. You're what? Like, you're one claim to like help people interpret the news. You are really deeply bad at in a yeah, like, like I've in got a, a sort of junior varsity full of way that ruin your day. <laughs> well, and I think this is this is like evident in the way that he defends himself and not just against this this claim, but like a, a bunch of the other ones, too, which is you always see him redound to like what I'm doing is vaccine efficacy boosterism. What I'm doing is vaccine campaign success boosterism. And, and there's like a good aspect to that, right? Like I'm here. I'm just here nobly and bravely talking about how great the vaccines are. And you can't stop talking about racism and political dissent <laughs> yeah, and things the that vaccines, don't fit into that narrative, right? The vaccines are so great that you have to fucking lie about how well they're working at a population level. <laughs> like, great job, David. Well, and this is the kind of thing where it's like you always see him rolling out where he's like, well, you know, yes, uh, I, I do agree that maybe if you if you age adjust things, it looks differently. But I don't agree that that's the predominant framework because the bigger framework that I'm asserting. Right. And he's like that. That doesn't matter as much to me. Right. Uh, because it doesn't fit into this bigger framework, which is that fundamentally, the problem of COVID is still a kind of pandemic of the unvaccinated white conservative Republican that the Biden administration is trying to decide what level, right, what level of death of that population can you get everyone else to agree to, right? Because that is fundamentally the conversation that they've been trying to sell people since January 2021. Which just erases, again, the entire fact of who actually is dying, which is not yeah. which yeah that's a component of it well, sure and but the like, conversation that they've also been trying to sell people is uh well you know in what sense does it even make sense to talk about covid infection in children because the risk is so <laughs> you know it's like the the risk gradient is so steep by age you know i mean for the past 600 fucking days like david leonhardt has been saying some version of well, an 80-year-old is at, is at much higher risk than a 10-year-old. So, you know, do we even need masks in schools? He's been saying some version of that, like, nonstop. But now, of course. But now that it's, it's a different narrative, like, age is exactly. not a Age doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So, I just don't think age matters I, that much. I think this... Except the, for when it does. I think, though, this is why it's so important <laughs> to, like... I, this is why, again, I say that kind of, like, if you don't take the political register into account when you look at like what he's doing here if you just simply make it about like oh he he that's weird he made this strange statistical error uh like how odd this should be retracted like if you don't if you don't incorporate this political analysis into it i think you miss that like again this is kind of um i mean i think this this newsletter um there this specific entry uh from the newsletter covid and race from david leonhardt is in my mind kind of a chief example of just like this kind of role that it seems like Leon Hart plays of almost doing like party hack work on spec or something like, <laughs> um, you know, no one's like literally, I assume no one's telling you that you have to like repeat this bullshit, yeah. but like, you know, recall back in March, for example, 
when we actually we had Abby and Justin Feldman <laughs> on the show to talk about um, the latest, the March 2022 National COVID-19 Preparedness Plan. Oh my gosh. In that plan, they highlighted specifically, I think, I believe I have two quick quotes from it. The White House's, quote, relentless focus on advancing equity, unquote, in the pandemic. And they uh, also touted that they had, quote, successfully put equity at the center of a public health response for the first time in the nation's history, unquote. And we, you know, talked at length about all the ways in which that was bullshit. <laughs> and also about how that plan substantially, like their quote unquote new plan for March was like mostly to do the same stuff as they had been doing already. And so when you so I find it very hard to believe that outside of just being sort of a simple political narrative of like, oh, look at this now, um, now this like, you know, racial inequity gap in terms of COVID deaths has, you know, Leonhard going so far as to say flipped. I have very, very hard to believe that that would be the case, not only because obviously the information, the data does not bear that out at all. It shows the reverse, but also because if you think about just how so little has changed with the pandemic response strategy. And also how basically as recently as um, I think it was uh, speaking of Justin, like last December, we mm -hmm, had an episode mm -hmm. called One Million with Justin, mm -hmm. where we talked about one of the things that we talked about, which like we endlessly got people saying, like, are you sure you said that statistic correct? Was that like until I think it was May 2021, um, fewer than 5000 college educated white people under 65 had died of covid in the US. So it's mm -hmm. like the first year, like, and I know that's the first year and the half of the pandemic that I'm talking about. But like, if you think about that, like for context at that point in the pandemic, the total official death count by like May 2021 was 500,000, which is harrowing thinking about how, you know, we obviously have since passed 1 million. But if you think about that, so like 5,000 deaths being among college educated white people under 65 that's you know 5,000 deaths and 500,000 uh deaths at that point it's literally like one percent mm -hmm. the deaths which is a far cry from the you know actual percentage of the population that that demographic is right so it's like you know and I know again I know that David Leonhardt is not talking about earlier in the pandemic he's not talking about education level which is also kind of bullshit metric anyway but it's like the best thing that we have to stand in for socioeconomic status and social determinants of health and things like that so like you know I don't know I guess like there are a lot of ways that you can approach this COVID death data and my point is I suspect very few of them end up looking good for you if you're trying hard to prove that the pandemic response wasn't racist classist and ableist um, so just the fact that like Leonhardt managed to find one doesn't mean that it does anything really except for just like advance this idea that we've just kind of like that we've managed to center equity all of a sudden in mm -hmm. a pandemic response where you can't even fucking get like where like even uh, treatment for the uninsured is gone. So the thing that I think is really important to take away from this is that this really bears repeating as many times as we can do it. COVID is still disproportionately infecting and killing racial and ethnic minority groups in the U.S. Age-adjusted COVID mortality rates are higher for Black people, Indigenous people, and Hispanic people than they are for white people in the United States. That is still the case. And I think that we should be vigilant about kind of like the conceptual movement uh, underneath these newsletters, because I really feel like, 
you know, David Leonhardt is trying to tell a story like COVID is no longer kind of like a racially disproportionate uh, public health threat. He's trying so hard to tie this all together into a, a story about partisanship. But it's like, oh, OK, well, if the, the burden of what he's doing is rhetorically shifting the burden of COVID from like a population that liberals are supposed to care about to a population that liberals are licensed to not give a shit about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens with a lot of like, I mean, there's like a whole deaths of despair kind of framework that I think is really worth critiquing, you know, maybe for another day. But I feel like the movement here is try- he's trying to make COVID into a, into a death of despair that it's just, you know, middle-aged white Trumpers that are basically killing themselves by refusing to get vaccinated. And that, I think, that's like a sinister, that's a sinister move in the in the discourse because the fact of the matter still remains that, you know, again, black populations, indigenous populations, Hispanic populations are still, you know, still dying at a disproportionately higher rate uh, of COVID. They are really bearing the brunt of this policy failure to contain the virus but David Leonhard is now trying to convince his like six million readers or something that this is this is no longer the case. And it's just like magas that are that are essentially choosing to kill themselves. And that could not be further from the truth. And that's like a really dangerous uh, gambit, I think, for Leonhard and probably for the Democrats. But what the fuck do I know? Well, and it's just it's dangerous for that to become the main narrative of what has what is even going on at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. that can't it can't be allowed to become the narrative. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, Ilian Hart's kind of final parting couple of short sentences here are millions of Americans in turn have chosen not to receive a life saving shot. Some have paid with their lives. It's, you know, again, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I mean, it's like so many of these things like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, uh, t- turns out surprise, you take the mask off and it's like, oh, it was the pandemic of the unvaccinated all along uh, as a, like it was the pandemic with the unvaccinated along. Yeah. Scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it's telling that I think again and again, and I mean, in some ways, it's like almost every time that we talk about Leonhardt, it's just kind of like, OK, now he's found some new rhetorical He's found like a new crevice to fill basically with mm-hmm. a, with like a, a version of the same kind of argument that you basically don't have to, to worry about COVID. Like no matter who it is, like it, whether you're the like a reader who is whether you're someone who is like everyone else in the United States structurally vulnerable to COVID because we've had a fucking failed state response to it because COVID is a, in fact a problem for everyone. Like it is just oh yeah well you know it's uh like we're in a different time now it it doesn't matter everything's changing everything's actually like we've achieved this kind of homeostasis with covid as you're as you're kind of pointing to abby like yeah we know that things aren't like great but things are fine for you right Mm -hmm. so uh you know uh do with that what you will random liberal uh new york times reader check out don't worry about it it's not your problem right i mean i think the thing that becomes staggering is right like how how much is public opinion actually just people being talked out of stuff, right? Yeah. And how much is our perception of common sense and common good and what is politically possible limited by such narrow, you know, interventions such as people like David Leonhardt, right? And it's, it's it, I think it's one of those things where thinking about how maybe it's not that like the entire world is up against people that's arguing for COVID protections. Maybe it's just that this is a long, hard struggle with an imbalance of power, right? Which is ultimately going to involve 
part of the narrative being to try and talk people out of saying anything. And this is really where people like David Leonhardt come in, right, in trying to smooth that glide path towards midterm elections, right? Because the ultimate thing is just this kind of, you know, forever forward electoral march towards some sort of democratic majority that's never going to exist, right? This is this is part of the bigger picture. But I, I think this is a good place to leave it for today. Um, Abby, thank you so much again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we will see you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will catch you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Thank you.